Let's start with a quick prayer. Father in heaven, we have every reason to believe that you're going to be with us now. Come into this room, not just into the walls, but into the hearts of the people that are here, including mine. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. So my talk today is titled, Bridges, Not Walls. And I want to talk to you about contextualization and communication. Jesus was, I believe, a master communicator and a master contextualizer. And I think that the Gospels go out of their way to present Jesus this way. I'll just go through a few passages to talk about Jesus, then I'll talk about Paul, and then we'll sort of hopefully have a little bit of time left over to talk about something I'm really passionate about, something I've been developing lately. So Jesus is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, and he says, follow me, for I will make you, and I know you know this, say that with me with a little bit of enthusiasm, I will make you fishers of men. We don't have to wonder why it is that Jesus makes the specific invitation, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, because the text says that they were fishermen. Very good. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus gives the invitation here to two fishermen to come and be fishers of men. What he does is he creates a point of access to their language, to their context, and to their culture. Just four chapters later, a Roman centurion approaches Jesus, and you might be familiar with the story. He approaches Jesus, and much to Jesus' astonishment, as well as all the surrounding peoples, he says, uh, I have a, a, a servant who's sick. And Jesus says, oh, no problem, I'll, I'll go and I'll heal him. And uh, the man says, no, 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 I'm like you. I'm a person of authority. I tell people to go and they go. I tell them to come and they come. Only speak the word and my servant will be healed. Now Jesus, before he speaks the word, he, he makes this remark. He's clearly incredulous. He says, I have not seen faith like this in the whole of Israel. Jesus' commendation of the Roman centurion is remarkable for a, a variety of reasons. Not the least of which is, the man was a Gentile, he was a Roman, he was a soldier, and he was a leader of soldiers. There were so many cultural, theological reasons for Jesus to treat the centurion like all of the rabbis would have. But Jesus affirms in the strongest possible language, I've not seen faith like this in the whole of Israel. And then this point, Jesus says, go. You, you can't miss it. The very point of access that the centurion creates with Jesus is, I'm a man of authority. I tell people to go and they go and come and they come. If you just speak the word, because he recognized him also as a fellow man of authority, he says, my servant will be healed. And Jesus then speaks his language. He says, go your way. Your servant is healed. In Matthew chapter 19, fast forwarding from chapter 8, we find Jesus' encounter with what we just know colloquially as the rich young ruler. And Jesus is approached by the rich young ruler, and I'm not going to detail all of the specifics of the interaction here. It's a fascinating interaction, but my favorite part is when Jesus makes the invitation to this ruler, he says, follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. Which of course raises the question, why that invitation in that setting to that man? And the answer is inescapable. The answer is obvious. When he spoke to fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When he spoke to a man of authority, he used the language of authority. And here when he speaks to a business-minded man, a money-minded man, an entrepreneur, he says, follow me and I'll give you an investment you couldn't possibly resist. 
In John chapter 4, skipping to the last of the Gospels, Jesus finds himself sitting at Jacob's well with a woman who is there in the heat of the noonday looking for water. Jesus ties what he has to offer to what she's after. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you water that would so slake your thirst you would never need to return to this well again. Jesus here ties the woman's context, her language, and her felt need to the invitation. We don't have to wonder if these are happenstance or perhaps even serendipitous. Maybe Jesus just happened to serendipitously say to fishermen, I'll make you fishers of men, and to men of authority to use the language of authority, and to an investor to use the language of, of economics. Oh no. The greatest text in all of the Gospels, arguably all of Scripture, that communicates both communication and contextualization is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. If you jump down 13 verses later to verse 14, it says the Word, you probably know this, became what? Flesh. That is the ultimate, that is the apex, that is the summit or the pinnacle of communication. How will I ever speak to these people in a language, in a context, in a culture that they will be able to access? I got it. I'll become one of them. Jesus was a master communicator and a master contextualizer. The Apostle Paul, unsurprisingly, we find, as Luke tells the story in the book of Acts, walks in the footsteps of Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, I'll just go through four of these very quickly, and then I'm sort of go to our practical takeaways. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, this is the first of Paul's four missionary journeys, with the last being involuntary. Paul finds himself in a synagogue in Antioch in Syria. And the Bible says that when Paul goes into this synagogue, it's the it's only one, it's the only sermon that is recorded of Paul in a synagogue, and you're supposed to surmise that all of Paul's synagogue sermons were similar to this one. The key thing happens, this is in Acts chapter 13, verse 16, where Paul opens his speech in this synagogue with these three words, men of, does anybody know the next word? Israel. Men of Israel. And then, remarkably, Paul, again, walking right in the very footsteps of Jesus, the master contextualizer and communicator, he proceeds to tell an exceedingly thoroughly Jewish story. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. He talks about Saul, the son of Kish. He tells a very Jewish story because he's in a very Jewish place on a Jewish day of worship, speaking from Jewish scriptures to Jewish people. The punchline of the story is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? Now what's remarkable, that's Acts chapter 13. In the very next chapter, in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 14, Paul finds himself also in a city in uh, ancient Syria, what's called Pisidia, called Lystra. Paul is not now in a synagogue, however, when he goes into the open air market in Lystra and <laughs> an, an amazing healing takes place and the residents of Lystra mistake, he and his traveling companion Barnabas, for two of their gods, Paul does something remarkable. In order to try to prevent them or to dissuade them from worshiping them as gods, he says this. He says, no, 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 no. I'm here to tell you about the God who made all things. I want to tell you about the God who sends the rain. I want to tell you about the God who puts, who puts the seasons of harvest in their order and who fills your bellies with food. Why doesn't he talk about 
about Abraham or Moses or Saul, the son of Kish? Isn't the answer obvious? This is not a Jewish audience. He's not in a Jewish synagogue. They're not familiar with the Jewish scriptures. So what kind of a story does he tell? He tells a Lyconian story, the punchline of which is the resurrection of Jesus. Can somebody say amen? amen. Acts chapter 17. This is the classic scripture in all of Pauline contextualization. Paul has found himself in the very place, the heart of the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, the, the intellectual capital of the world. And when Paul addresses the Athenian philosophers, it's as if he's falling over himself to find every conceivable bridge with these Greek-speaking peoples. He says, I was wandering around your city, considering the objects of your devotion. And I saw a statue uh, with this uh, moniker, to the unknown God. And he says, I want to tell you, the one, I didn't say it, Paul said it, the one you worship ignorantly. I want to tell you about one of your own gods. And then he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Again and again, Paul, in fact, you can identify not less than eight and as many as ten purposeful, radical, methodological bridges that Paul is building to try and tell what could be fairly described as a Greek story. As a what kind of story did I say? As a Greek story. Guess what the punchline of the story is? I'll give you one guess. The resurrection of Jesus. Now don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. When Paul in, in Acts 13 is in a Jewish synagogue preaching from Jewish scriptures, talking to Jewish people on the Jewish day of worship, he tells a, what kind of a story? He tells a Jewish story. When he's among the Lyconian people of Lystra, what kind of a story does he tell? The God who sends the rain, the God who fills your bellies with food, the God who sends the harvest. When he's speaking to Athenians, he's trying to tell a Greek story. Hey, this is the God you worship ignorantly. I want to talk to you about that God. Now, we don't need to wonder if Pastor Asherick has been here a little loose and maybe a little creative in his understanding of Paul's methodological accommodation because Paul tells us expressly that this is exactly how he tried to reach people in various situations, cultures, and contexts. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm reading in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, let me just say a word on that, Paul had many horizontal loyalties and identities. He was a Roman citizen, Greek educated, who was a Jew by birth. But he says this, I am willing to temporarily or provisionally suspend any of my horizontal identities for some greater good. What is the greater good, Paul, for which you would suspend temporarily or provisionally your horizontal identities? He tells us, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those that are under Torah as under Torah that I might win those who are under the Torah. Those that are without Torah as without Torah. And then he makes this very important parenthetical clarification. Not being without Torah toward God but under Torah toward Christ that I might win those who are without Torah. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. And then he tells us in verse 23, what is the overriding impetus and motivation? He says, I do this for the sake of the gospel. Paul, why would you so 
accommodate yourself culturally? Why would you so accommodate yourself linguistically? Why would you so deny even some of your horizontal and provisional identities in order to gain access to people? We don't have to wonder. Paul would say, well, because I want to tell everybody about the message of the crucified and risen Christ. Now, Acts chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people that were assembled there together, largely Jews, but certainly some proselytes. And this is key. And we've read this, and many of us are familiar with this, but we've not taken away the most basic lesson. God gave them on that special day the gift of what? You probably know this. The gift of tongues. The gift of what, everyone? Now just listen to what you're saying. Just in the giving of the gift, God gave the church the gift, the onus, the responsibility of communication. He did not give the listeners the gift of ears. This tells you that God understands that the onus, the responsibility of communicating clearly in a language that they can understand, it's not on them to know what we're talking about. It's on us to speak a language that makes sense to them. Jesus said to fishermen, I'll make you fishers of men. He spoke to a rich young ruler and said, I'll give you an investment you cannot resist. He spoke authority to a man of authority. He spoke about water to a woman who was at a well. Jesus and Paul were master communicators and contextualizers. Now on that, one of the reasons that we become so insular in our language, in our jargon, as Gary called it, is because we have, I believe, adopted a false narrative of what gospel success looks like. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye a very simple concept here. It's a continuum that goes from 1 to 10. 1 to 10. At one end of the spectrum, 1 is not just religious disinterest, but complete religious hostility. These will be your militant atheists, people that are dead set against any and all forms of religion. Two would be perhaps not hostility, but definitely not religious. Three might be an agnostic that leans atheist. Four might be a true agnostic who's open to any and all possibilities. Five might be somebody who's agnostic but leans toward monotheism. Six might be somebody who is certainly monotheistic, maybe of the Islamic variety or perhaps even the Christian variety or the Jewish variety. Seven, sympathetic to the Christian view of God. Eight, highly sympathetic to the Christian view of God. Nine, on the verge of becoming. Ten, a committed follower of Jesus who takes scripture seriously. So just get that continuum in your mind. From religiously hostile, one, to committed follower of Jesus, ten. Are we all together so far? When it comes time to measure gospel success, organizations like ASI and churches like the Seventh-day Adventist Church or any church have certain limited metrics in order to assess, are we preaching the gospel? Are we building the kingdom up? Those metrics would be things like number of baptisms, size of church, attendance at church, attendance at church school, and tithe. These are not meaningless metrics of success, but they are only just a small fraction of the larger picture of success that only God can measure in moving people along the continuum. Are you with me? So you have a neighbor. You're, 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 you're a committed follower of Jesus who takes scripture seriously. You're a 10. Your neighbor's a 4. 
Over the course of one to two to three to four years of interaction with your neighbor, when you part ways and they move away or you move away, you can say definitively, your, your neighbor asked you to pray with them and you prayed with them. They, they asked you to uh, pray for their dad when he was involved in a serious car accident. They might have even said something like this in the course of your relationship. I'm not a believer like you, but if I ever was going to be, I would be a Christian. They're no longer a four. They're a five. They might even be a six. They're heading in the right direction. When it comes time to communicate to people about the goodness of God, don't think outcome, think influence. Okay? Think outcome, not influence. Say that with me if you would. Think, excuse me, influence, not outcome. Let's say that together. Influence, not outcome. One more time. Influence, not outcome. Albert Einstein famously observed, not everything that can be counted counts. And not everything that can be, not everything that counts can be counted. Nobody sitting in a room, in a boardroom, in a conference office can measure a four to a six, or a six to a seven, or a seven to an eight, or even a one to a two. But these opportunities for the Holy Spirit to come into people's lives, into their culture, into their context, into their situation, and move them along the continuum to get them closer to Jesus, the Holy Spirit measures every single one of them. How did Paul say it? Paul said that some water and some plant and some prepare, but God brings the increase. Friends, if we would have something resembling apostolic gospel success, if we would have something resembling the gospel success that Jesus had in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we must think in terms of incremental movements toward the kingdom. We often think if we don't get people to 10, we have failed. Our church, no, 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 you didn't fail. It just might not be the right time, the right situation. Be working for influence, and Jesus will take responsibility for the outcome. Years ago, I was reading in this incredible book called Desire of Ages, and it went like this. God gave the, 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 the disciples the Great Commission, and then this phrase, and he took upon himself the responsibility for its success. If we orient ourselves to maximizing gospel influence, God will take care of the gospel outcomes in both measurable, meaningful metrics, but also all of those incremental metrics along the way. I want to strongly urge you, strongly urge you that insofar as it, as it is appropriate situationally and conversationally to minimize the necessity for those to whom you're speaking to have the gift of ears and maximize your willingness to take ownership and receive the gift of tongues. Maybe not the linguistic gift of tongues, but I'm going to speak in a language that makes sense to these people. I loved what, what I think it was you, dear sister, that said about the Sabbath, just as a case in point. We often talk about the obligation of the Sabbath. Away with this. Talk about the opportunity of the Sabbath. We often talk about the continuity of the Sabbath. Fine, but let's start talking about the content of the Sabbath. Friends, when we just make a simple shift away from a 10 as the only measurable metric of gospel success, and we say, wait a minute, there are meaningful metrics of gospel success all the 
the way along the continuum which only the Holy Spirit can measure and bring to fruition, it will give us permission to adapt ourselves situationally, contextually, and conversationally into social situations where we can maximize influence and then trust God with the outcome. I invite you to study Jesus and the Gospels and have a look and see how they were literally falling over themselves to maximize points of access, the point of which, the punchline of which was always the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God bless you all. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.